0: Hi, welcome to episode 18 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. My name is Stephanie Van Latke and I'm joined today by a guest co-host, my friend and colleague, Professor Jean-Christophe Boucher from the University of Calgary. Episode 18 will focus on NATO and the Middle East, the Munich Security Conference and Macron's vision for European nuclear defense policy. And then we tackle some questions from Twitter. Our interviews today feature Victoria Tate, a PhD candidate at Carleton, who is writing her dissertation on how women, peace and security policy has been implemented within the Canadian Armed Forces. And Sean Skelly, the co-founder of Out in National Security. She is based in Washington, D.C. This is episode 18 of Battle Rhythm, and Steve Seidman is in Japan. I'm with Jean-Christophe Boucher, or JC. He's an assistant professor of political science at the University of Calgary. He is currently a Fulbright chair at the University of Southern California. He co-authored the 2017 book, The Politics of War, Canada's Mission in Afghanistan, with UBC Press. JC, thanks so much for joining me today. So what is a Fulbright chair? Can you describe that for our listeners?
1: My specific Fulbright is a research chair in public diplomacy at the Annenberg School of Journalism and Communication. I have also connections with the Department of Political Science where I interact with them and and work on some of their projects too. At Annenberg, what they really wanted me to do is focus on uh, social media, machine learning. One of the things they're trying to do and the State Department uh, is trying to do here in the US and, and to some extent in Canada is to Find a way to leverage social media to bolster and and improve their public diplomacy. That means essentially a capacity to scrape, collect data on social media, analyze it in real time, and then respond, evaluate, and and kind of be flexible about it. Most governments are extremely bad at doing this. They have a tendency to be overly uh, structured which defeats the purpose of social media, which should be kind of reactive and fast. You know, it takes like 25 signature before sending one tweet.
0: My next question for you is you're one of the co-directors of the Canadian Defence and Security Network and you work on civil-military relations. So how does this work at USC fit into your broader vision? Sure. I mean,
1: to be honest, I fell into machine learning and data and analytics mostly because of civil-military relations. And what I found really interesting in, in the CDS ASN kind of project was all this question about Canadian society and national defense. It seems like in Canada, we don't have the kind of really interesting conversation about national security and national defense. And a lot of this lack of interest, lack of, of literacy is, I think, mostly due to the fact that we don't have a lot of data We don't have a lot of empirical work that helps us understand better how Canadians understand national defense and what they want, really, with the Canadian military. So when Steve approached me to do this, I said, like, we need to kind of build a research program that looks a lot like what we see in the U.S., where there's a lot of emphasis on data collection, data creation, data analysis, and kind of create this baggage of empirical work that really studies Canadian society and their attitude towards defense policy and goes beyond just the basic like anecdotal argument about like I think Canadians want x which usually mm-hmm. we don't have the data that tells us either way so what do we need first we need better public opinion surveys and public opinion data we have to understand better what Canadians want we don't do this well in Canada our best survey work in political science is usually done with the Canadian electoral uh, study and there's like four questions on actual international relations and i think one or two of them are just national defense so we really don't have like a like a longitudinal yearly survey that allows us to understand better where preferences go and why and also when we do these surveys usually it's surveys that are sponsored by national defense so they have like a really specific kind of focus on like we want to know what Canadians want about afghanistan but they don't really have a kind of broader view about what that should be or it's like you know news agencies that do this so one of the things we're doing at the civil military node is to really create these tools to analyze public preferences on national defense hopefully we can do this yearly And have other partners do this yearly then we can have really like good data every year then we can start to really answer interesting question about you know what causes these differences is it a question about age is it about ideology and partisanship is it about regionality? is it about language like we actually don't know a lot about those Uh, the second project was about news media so essentially how does news media coverage in canada on national defense issues create influences both public opinion and public perceptions of defense policy issues, but also policymakers. And to do this, we need to essentially read all news articles on defense policy. And this is how I basically fell into machine learning, because super fast, you realize that you have like 2000 news articles and and coding those become super expensive and difficult to do. And this is where we start to to say, well, we need like more automated content analysis and machine learning that that's really how I developed this. And the last part is about social media, like, you know, how does social media interact on the defense policy landscape as a political communication tool uh, as an environment for not for debate, but also as an environment for information warfare. So one of the things we do with our partners at National Defense is start to create projects around information warfare, kind of try to analyze in Canada, like how do the Russians interact in our national conversation about national defense? How do the Chinese do this? How do the Ukrainians do this? And then maybe use these tools to start to create also, information campaign abroad, essentially being able to, to understand who are the influencers, what are the narratives, which one to focus on, which one to ignore, and kind of do this. And slowly but surely, we're building the team here to kind of do this. And students and PhDs are, like, concentrated in either doing, like, the news media and, foreign pol- and defense policy part, the public opinion part, or the social media part.
0: That's excellent. And what's great about some of this data that you will be gathering in the surveys that you'll be conducting is that'll be of use, not just to the civil military relations research node, but to really all of us within the CDSN. And you're gathering feedback and input from a lot of the researchers to make sure that what you're working on can be shared broadly, correct?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we work on diversity issues. So we, one of the questions we have is, A, how to measure gender properly in surveys, but also how does gender differences influences public preferences on defense policy issues. We're trying to actually hit all the different nodes and create the data sets and create the the, the questions that everyone has.
0: Okay, typically during the first segment of the podcast, we talk about recent events that have struck us as newsworthy. Let's start with NATO in the Middle East, since it was raised during the last episode of Battle Rhythm, and there's a significant update nato defense ministers seem to be in agreement that the nato mission in iraq should be expanded and this is meant not as an expansion of current activities necessarily but of activities currently being carried out by the us-led coalition against isis so a transfer of responsibilities and tasks of sort so the nato defense ministers agree But will the Iraqi government? The Iraqi parliament adopted a resolution in January to see the departure of foreign troops, but mostly US troops. Would a NATO mission as opposed to a US mission make a big difference to the Iraqi people? Would US troops not operate under this revamped NATO mission? The details have not been worked out yet. All we know is that NATO is going for it. This show of unity is uh, pretty rare at NATO. So I wanted to see what your thoughts, were on that if you had any hot takes from the recent announcements?
1: Um, I mean, when, when I heard the announcements, it, it felt a lot Afghanistan 2.0. Essentially, where you remember in Afghanistan, like in 2004, we started to make the transition from the US led coalition to like a more involvement to NATO. And one of the resulting Problem that we got out of this was the fact that the Americans kind of pulled back a lot. And then we ended up with all sorts of problems with burden sharing, different kinds of caveats from all the NATO partners. And then we had to kind of spend a lot of energy at coalition politics more so than actually on the ground work. I'm kind of you know, skeptical on this new trend. Maybe they, they do agree. I'm pretty sure the Americans would be super happy to kind of relinquish some of that control. It has been some of President Trump's desire to have allies do more and kind of pull back US footprint in the world. So that's not a surprise. What I'm afraid of is that A, will the Americans stay? If they don't, I don't see the the NATO allies having a, like a capacity on the ground to actually conduct all these operations and, and do from nose to tail operations without the Americans being there and being overly involved in in this kind of thing. I'm afraid that eventually it's gonna be one or two or three countries that are really doing the bulk of the work. And from the Canadian perspective, I know we're gonna do our part and we have a tendency and a willingness to actually play our part. But in the grand scheme of things, I'm not sure we actually get the kudos that we hope we'll get out of this kind of coalition work. A lot of the conversations during the Afghanistan mission was the fact that, oh, well, you know, the, the allies love us and they're really happy about us doing our work. And they're really, really looking forward to the Canadians to do more. But when we started to have conversations about burden sharing, about, you know, defense spending, then all that good work kind of was blown out. And then nobody cared about what how much weight we carried uh, in Afghanistan what was really you know, in top of people's mind was, do you spend 2% of your GDP on national defense? For the Canadian perspective, if we're hoping to get accolades out of this, I think, again, we'll be deceived and dispirited. We should do our part, but also be cognizant of the limits of our military and also the limits of our ambition in that region. What do you think?
0: I think that you're, you're right on the money there in terms of this feeling of unease that this new proposal of a greater NATO role in Middle East has imposed upon allies. And I think that this sense of unease was also on display at the Munich Security Conference. So even though... NATO is presenting a united front in terms of maybe doing more in Iraq, we can see some of the sources of disunity uh, being on display and this transatlantic rift widening between the United States and European allies. So maybe the conference theme, which was called Westlessness was appropriate. Uh, Westlessness, as (laughs) in a certain restlessness in the West resulting from more and more transatlantic division. (laughs) Play on words there. But if Trump is not keen on leading, Macron certainly has stepped up to fill that role. If we're looking to a leader in the European environment in a post-Brexit world, uh, Macron is really stepping up to the plate and advancing new proposals. So one of the things that we saw at the Munich Security Conference was Macron advocating for a coordinated European nuclear defense policy. This isn't the first time the French have done this, but very significant because it came right after Brexit, and this underscores the fact that France is now the only nuclear power in the EU. Before the Munich security conference, Macron delivered a speech on French nuclear deterrence. And this is quite the custom for French presidents to do this kind of big nuclear deterrence speech. And he reaffirmed the importance of France's nuclear weapons to protect the country's vital interests. So he used similar phrases and narratives on on nuclear weapons as other presidents have done. But he really emphasized this need for more European cooperation and strategic dialogue. Uh, His recent speech emphasized the autonomy of French decision-making in this respect, but really that this vision of autonomy is compatible with this unshakable solidarity towards France's European partners and here I'm doing like a rough translation of yes. his uh, of his speech that's in French uh, but I'll quote him here uh, soyons clairs les intérêts vitaux de la France ont désormais une dimension européenne so Macron's vision for a stronger Europe uh, now has a clearly nuclear dimension. What's less clear is how Macron's European vision works in tandem with Europe's role within NATO. Mm-hmm. Even if Macron denies that the two are in competition, he has professed a lot more enthusiasm for European initiatives than NATO ones. And once again, not even thinking back to, you know, his harsh words about NATO during his uh, interview with The Economist, but we saw have similar enthusiasm for European initiatives at the Munich Security Conference and, and where NATO fits into all of this and this vision for a more autonomous and independent Europe is unclear.
1: Right. And I, I was looking at uh, like French foreign policy for a while now and how they're really trying to push for that kind of pro-European stance and development on defense policy issues. And there's like two things in my mind. The first one is kind of that French attitude toward European partners and saying like, we can help you create better things. And there's really a willingness to maybe not dictate, but at least strongly suggest that the French would be at the forefront of that leader, European leadership. How do other European partners feel about this? The Germans are usually never really super enthusiastic about these pan-European defense projects. And that goes also against kind of the NATO part where it seems to me that the French are kind of pulling like the covers more on the European part and that's gonna leave like the NATO partner without a blanket in the bed. And I feel as if, if you're running after two rabbits at the same time, usually you lose one. And it seems to me that if they put a lot of efforts trying to build and create and consolidate and coordinate a European defense policy, what's going to happen is essentially the the NATO part will kind of drift away. And what I find interesting also is that I don't see really this conversation at that level in Canada. There seems to be from the Tudor government still this kind of starry-eyed argument about like, we want coalition and want NATO to to work. I think they're right to want this. But there isn't really a conversation about like, is this realistic? What does that look like? Now we're stuck between France, Britain, and the US pulling on all directions. And like, which one will we take? Which one do we want? How do we work toward the one we want and develop a strategy toward this? It seems here we're kind of like, reactive and not necessarily proactive in developing a Canadian alternative or a Canadian voice and saying like, this is what we want.
0: Well, we'll continue to monitor this certainly on on this podcast. And another issue that we're continuing to monitor and a bit of a, another update from The last episode is on this goal of increasing the representation of women in the Canadian Armed Forces so that women eventually make up 25% of the Canadian Armed Forces. David Pugliese wrote an article in The Citizen about different strategies the Canadian Armed Forces have contemplated to attract more women within its ranks. And they're interesting. So following an ATI request, some of the proposals were mottos such as my blings are my medals uh, or proposals to having shorter and slimmer skirts. So all of these ideas on how to make the military more attractive to young women, I understand how complex they are. And so this is a trick question for you, JC. Is it because I'm no longer in the young category that these ideas make (laughs) me cringe or has the military missed the mark?
1: I don't know. I mean, when I read this, I was kind of because I thought about this issue before on another subject, but it seemed to me that let's go with the positive. The positive is the military knows that it has a hard time convincing women or people from not necessarily uh, male gender to get into the military and serve. The fact that they understand this is a problem and they're trying to find a strategy is at least somewhat a, a good thing. This is the kinds of things you should do. You should market, like micro-target your audience. You know that you you want, you know, certain kinds of demographics in, your, in recruitment. And then you have to kind of understand what they really want out of the military. But they're like at ground one. It's not zero because they know there's a problem. So when I heard about these kind of sh- shorter skirt would encourage women to, you know, enter the military. I found this unconvincing. I would like to see the data. I would like to see the data on the focus group that came up with that answer. Are you convinced?
0: By the shorter skirt argument, no. <laughs> and you know, I'm just thinking of any employer using, I don't know, a pencil skirt as an incentive for me to join their organization is probably not the way to go. I think that the Canadian Armed Forces can definitely find ways to show the benefits of camaraderie at work, that the military can lead to a good work life balance, to maybe reassure women that the military is safe, uh, is a safe environment. You want people to feel inspired and to want uh, to be excited about the prospects of a career. And so back to surveys, your your specialty, uh, the surveys about Canadian attitudes towards the Canadian Armed Forces show that there's generally a fairly high display of, of support for the military, but that awareness is really low. So there's, seems to be a public education piece here that's that's lacking so that, you know, if you want to join a, a specific mission uh, and if you want to buy into a specific datement, you, you have to know what that is, what it is that the Canadian Armed Forces are doing at home and abroad. Mm-hmm. And it's clear from the data that Canadians don't really have any idea of where the Canadian Armed Forces are because they haven't had the kinds of regular updates on what the troops do. Since Afghanistan.
1: Right. And I I think you're right. Um, I mean, and it has to be more focused.
0: Okay, JC, I think we have to move on to our Twitter questions. Mm -hmm. So the first one is directly addressed to you, JC, and it's from Chris Roberts. Yes. He says, Can I use your standing desk while you are basking in the California sun? Or more appropriately, why isn't high public opinion support for CAF to do peacekeeping not leveraged more fully by a government that said since 2016 it is committed to peacekeeping? So both questions are interesting. So the answer is (laughs) yes, you can use my standing desk.
1: So the other question is actually a question that, uh, that we have. I have an hypothesis of why this is. We don't really have the data to kind of lean one way or the other. My argument is this. Canadians are overwhelmingly supportive of peacekeeping in theory. When you like poll them, it's like 70% of Canadians say, yes, we should do more in peacekeeping. When you specifically ask them about missions, then that enthusiasm is less evident uh so if you tell them okay so would you agree with a mission in mali then it like it goes down to 49 or something Mm like that okay so not mali let's do 80 you want to go to 80 then it's like less enthusiastic so there's like a gap between what we think of ourselves like in theory and then when we're actually asked like a clear policy issue then we're less you know, enthusiastic about these missions. So my sense is that they, they understand that if they go into a mission in Congo with 45% support and something goes wrong, there's casualties, there's you know less support from the UN, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong, then it's a crisis they need to manage. And so that's a problem. We don't have a lot of data that shows this, like the, the, one of the things we wanna do with the survey is kind of tease these questions out like, okay, peacekeeping in theory but not in practice and kind of show this but usually when whenever time I do like a I, I like compare public attitude toward like specific military missions for peacekeeping like the there's not a lot of it's a, like it's a 50-50 kind of thing which is not great Uh, if you're really trying to do something that is kind of risky. So that's my hot take. What do you think?
0: (laughs) So if if your hypothesis is verified, or if you do see a gap between support for peacekeeping overall and then support for individual missions, maybe the Trudeau government should continue to do what it's doing now, which is talk a lot about (laughs) peacekeeping, but actually not send a lot of uh, Canadian Armed Forces members abroad. Exactly. And,
1: And we've done this since, like, 93. Like the last real big mission was on Perfor. And it's been a while, it's been 30 years. We haven't really. You know, done a lot of peacekeeping in our recent and not so recent past, but somehow we still kind of build on this assumption. And there's like a nostalgia to it that is interesting. There's also the, the argument that our sense of what peacekeeping is and should do is actually not what peacekeeping is in 2020. I mean, now today peacekeeping forces in Mali are actually confronting, you know, insurgents and there are actually people dying and it's a risky environment and it's not the kind of, you know, walking around with a blue beret and handing out, you know, like lollipops to kids kind of mission. Um, I think people hold dear to that sense of peacekeeping, of kind of police work, like community police work, more so than the three block war that we're actually kind of doing.
0: We also can't discount the Trump effect because even though there was an intention to return to peacekeeping, this coincided more or less with the election of, of Donald Trump. And I think that we can't discount the fact that Trudeau probably also had to hedge his bets when it came to peacekeeping. Not to engage in too much counterfactual thinking about it, but I think we may have seen more peacekeeping had Trump not been elected in the U.S. From the renegotiation of the USMCA to being seen as, or I should say the renegotiation of NAFTA, to being seen as you know, more active within NATO or at least spending more within NATO, I think Trump has forced Canada to pay attention to certain issues and not others, and maybe peacekeeping just fell by the wayside as something that was talked a lot about during the election and then just didn't materialize. Great, well that's all the time we have now. We have uh, Miss Sean Skelly, the co-founder of Out in National Security, based in Washington, DC. But up next is Victoria Tate, who is a PhD candidate at Carleton. JC, thanks so much for co-hosting with me today.
1: It was a pleasure. It was way easier than I thought.
2: Today on Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Victoria Tate. She is one of our Capstone Scholars who's presenting at the Canadian Forces College on March 10th based on a talk she gave to the Inter-University Seminar on Armed Forces and Society Canada in 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Well, Tell us about what you presented and what you're going to be presenting.
3: Okay, so what I presented stems from my doctoral research on an IR term called vernacularization, which, for the uninitiated, is just a fancy way of playing telephone, and so We're taking international norms, we're passing them down through various systems of governance, and we're seeing, okay, what comes out at the end? Um, Now, I've been doing that with Resolution 1325 and its implementation in the Canadian Armed Forces. And the animating question behind that is actually provided by Levitt and Mary in a study where they say, okay, how are global ideas about women's rights translated into local context, and how does the local talk back? So, for my purposes, I kind of changed it to, can we make the military speak feminist without making the feminists speak military? And from that, we get the question of, okay, so the Canadian Armed Forces is generally seen as a leader in gender integration, in implementing uh, women in the combat arms earlier than many of its allies, But yet we still hear these problematic stories coming out of the external review, how can we square this gap? So one of the ways in which I've looked at it, and this is what we did for the conference in particular, is let's look at the question of cultural change. Is there a way to measure the change of norms within an institution with this kind of research so my interest in all of this research started with my master's research project it looked at the role of gender construction in asymmetric engagement and at the time there was a lot of pushback about whether or not there was any sort of cultural issue in the canadian forces with regard to uh, the integration of women and you know why it should even matter and Over the years, we've seen that people are starting to pick up this question. I mean, my findings with that project were that it's not just a normative question, integrating women. It's actually an operational priority. And since then, you can sort of see this coming out in NATO research, in governmental research, that there is this increasing opportunity for a productive exchange between feminists and representatives of the military. And this is in stark contrast to what we've seen in previous years. We have people like Cynthia Low, Cynthia Cockburn, who argue that the exchange between feminists in the military is, is quite misinformed. So we shouldn't be looking at how to get women in. We should be looking at how to get men out. And so I wondered if there is a way to sort of engage with this conversation and look at whether or not we really can use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, which is an older question from feminist debates. And so the research I'm conducting for my dissertation uses a method called vernacularization. It comes from the study of norm transfusion in international relations. But the animating methodological question there is provided by Levitt and Mary, who asked, how are global ideas about women's rights translated into local context? And how does the local talk back? I, I just thought that was fascinating. So I thought, okay, well, to speak to what we're seeing globally, this sort of increased engagement, I wonder if we can make the military speak feminist now that they really have an interest in it, um, without necessarily making the feminists speak military. And so the case study I chose was how we taken in 1325 and translated it for implementation into the Canadian Armed Forces. And the idea there is that norm-receiving communities are just sort of like, passive receivers of knowledge. They're actually going to take those ideas, they're going to reshape them, and in some cases, they may actually distort them. So all of this to say, one of my fantastic mentors, Alan English, was putting together a uh, panel on cultural change for IUS. And he said, okay, well, if we take your research... How can we use that to measure not just change in norms, but perhaps right. a change in culture, too? Because um, we're all about this sort of cultural change thing now in the calf. And so it was a tricky question, but... I've always found these two articles, one by Duncanson that was published in 2015, one by Duncanson and Woodward in 2016, extremely useful. The first sort of acknowledge is, yes, we have created this combat masculinity as a way to transcend class, uh, class identity and ethnicity. Um, And it's violent and it's aggressive. But if you look at the priorities and composition of NATO forces, they've really changed since the end of the Cold War. And what we're seeing is that these feminine attitudes are becoming increasingly valued in militaries. And then that's extended in Duncanson and Woodward, who acknowledged the feminist debates that I was talking about Before, you know, the tension between sort of the right to fight feminists and the women that say we should stay out of it altogether. But what they're arguing is that if we are continuing to shift more to more towards security and stability rather than violence and invasion, well, this merits further engagement and and perhaps reform. So without really getting into the results, because we're still doing a few revisions on that prior to the capstone, these trends are evident in our own defense policy, in the composition of our military, and in a lot of the stories that stem from our time in Afghanistan, that female soldiers were crucial to operational efficacy. And in saying that, they were actually able to achieve goals that coincide with the peaceable feminist objectives. So um, this is, you know, by no means a smooth transition to a a reformed military. But I think we can argue that some of this is is taking place, that that sort of hegemonic masculine ideal is being undermined.
2: Well, that's really interesting because one of the challenges in all of this stuff is just trying to measure progress. You know, and recent reports showed that there was more report of sexual assault in the military. And one way to read that was that people felt more comfortable reporting. Another way to read that is there's more sexual assault in the military and so one of the challenges of all this stuff is that it's really hard to figure out whether there's progress being made.
3: Absolutely I mean that's that's one of the main problems I have when you're trying to study sexual assault using quantitative methods I mean there's obvious incentives to doing that but depending on who you ask how it's framed is it right force is it in the reserves you get really competing answers so I mean obviously it's it's a significant problem and all of my research to date has has shown that remains a problem that masculine culture is an issue but the problem that i've always had with that kind of analysis mm-hmm. is it can render invisible all of the work that women have done in the military and the work they've done to try and reform these issues Jody Thomas wrote a really interesting piece a while ago on, on how yes you know women are in the executive roles in the military they are in the rank and file we're doing all of this work but You know, we don't necessarily just want to be these rare and unique, I don't know, creatures that were either, you know, Uh, leading the institution or we're completely marginalized, that in actuality, small incremental changes can lead to radical institutional reform. And that's what I was hoping we could capture with the Duncanson and Woodward work. Because within the current environment, it's really easy to get depressed (laughs) about the progress that's been made. And it's really easy to step into a narrative that I think takes away some of the empowerment, that women female soldiers have achieved for themselves through military service and so um yeah just looking for a way okay we know there's a problem but how can we theorize a way forward and and, i mean this is all done through um semi-structured qualitative interviews so less about you know, the words more about the music, I guess.
2: Fantastic. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Again, Victoria Tate is going to be one of the Capstone scholars presenting in Toronto on March 10th. You can register the event at our website. You have to register if you want to go there because it's on Canadian Forces College property, but it is free. It's a new event for us, and we're hoping to make it an annual thing. And we're really thankful to you, Victoria, for participating in this effort.
3: Oh, thank you so much. It's it's uh, really exciting to be part of it.
0: Sean Skelly, it's a pleasure having you on Battle Rhythm.
4: Thank you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here on behalf of my fellow co-founders of in National Security.
0: And so you co-founded in National Security. Uh, you serve as a presidentially appointed commissioner, and you also work in the private sector. Can I ask you, as a first question, and wearing these multiple hats, what your Battle Rhythm looks like?
4: My personal Battle Rhythm has not changed too much from the time I was in the uh, on active duty to the time I served in the Pentagon um, through to this day. What is quite different is serving multiple masters. I'm up well before dawn out the house before 6 a.m. and not home until after 8 p.m. But now, um, and I've always gone hard in that time, five plus days a week, but now depending upon the hour of the day, well, which master or mistress I may have to respond to and how I keep those multiple balls in the air as opposed to just charging straight ahead and um, running repeatedly into one brick wall. Now I have to juggle some things while I do that.
0: And you participated in the fireside chat at the year ahead conference in Ottawa. I was wondering for our listeners who were not able to attend, if you could go into the story of how you founded out in national security.
4: Thank you. I'd be happy to. I serve as a co-founder of in National Security, along with my dear friends, Luke Schleusner and Rusty Pickens. The three of us each served in the Obama administration, though we didn't work alongside each other, though we knew each other from some of the professional development that was done within the administration. Lucas served in the White House and then in the Department of Defense. Rusty also served in a different part of the White House and then the Department of State. I served in the Department of Defense and then the Department of Transportation, but our paths all crossed. And uh, at the conclusion of the administration, we had uh, formed a friendship that included an ongoing conversation about um, we all three happened to identify as LGBTQ in one form or another, and we had had started and continued a conversation with regard to the LGBTQ's communities' appreciation of professionals serving in the national security domain writ large, and how that was represented in the Obama administration. That conversation had picked up speed in advance of the 26th presidential election, and then the result of that election changed the tenor of the conversation as to what we thought was important in years ahead, because it was obvious pretty quickly that where LGBTQ rights had been advanced in America through various means, either court rulings or... um, administrative actions place of lgbtq people in america would quickly came under assault and we felt that our conversation regarding um, the appreciation of our community with regard to how our people serve and national security have been serving needed to be advanced because the current administration's campaign against the place of lgbtq americans where virtually every department in the government has taken some administration or legal action about uh, LGBTQ rights, whether it's things such as removing all references on websites or taking reference to um, LGBTQ people out of their employee protection notifications, changing rules about the place of LGBTQ Americans in society that protect them. Coupled with that, the administration also has had what I would call a campaign if it's not as uh, strictly organized or recognized as one against the place of civil servants in our country. In the United States, civil servants, have they've been picked on as for political gain by candidates and by serving members of uh, federal and local legislatures um, as to the value of, of civil servants and their worth and their dedication. And they've been much derided um, sort of whipping posts. That's, I think, the phrase I was looking for. So when coupled with that campaign against LGBTQ people, as well as civil servants of all stripes, um, we felt it was important to to do more about um, how to advance the place of LGBTq national serv- national security professionals and to raise the profile of those who have been serving, um, which led us to consider the steps to take to form a nonprofit for that very mission.
0: and And as you mentioned before you alluded to, the climate that, that changed under the current administration. I'm wondering about a specific issue that, that was especially prevalent in, in the news and how it was covered in Canada, which was the transgender ban in the military and the debates surrounding th- that tweet initially. But you spent 20 years in the Navy as a naval flight officer. How did you react to that term? It didn't
4: surprise me in the least, frankly, um, understanding... Well, I'll start with fact as to its relevance to me. I'm a person who identifies as transgender. I ended my career in the Navy at just over 20 years um, because I needed to leave the Navy um, in order to um, live my life as as the authentic person that I am today, lest I be um, frankly discovered and asked to leave the Navy on their terms and not my Mm -hmm. terms. Whereas I expected to do um, 25 or so years, if not more, as far as I could go. Once I understood what I needed to do to live my best life, I had to leave precipitously, but I also undertook the personal decision to begin my own personal um, gender transition while on active duty as a naval officer attached to the Marine Corps. So I have deep personal experience as to what it means to be a transgender person in the U.S. military. And while I was a presidential appointee in the Obama administration, when the policy to allow open transgender service was being researched and studied and put into place. I was in that Pentagon while that was happening and I was happy to be there, but at the same time, I didn't have anything to do with it. And I'm was, and I think remain the first and only out open transgender veteran to serve in a presidential administration because Mm. I had another job to do at the time. And I did my job in the Pentagon while that work was being done and I was proud of our administration for fostering it and getting it out. But I also knew that the, uh, the then incoming new Trump administration had people in it who had very strident anti-transgender views. People who shared those views in our in our populace took great comfort that the, that those folks were coming into power. So it was I personally expected that they would do something and that they wouldn't let it stand because much as um, it happened in our history with integrating the armed forces with African-Americans, Black Americans. It was decried that that would be the end of combat effectiveness and good order and discipline. Mm. When it came time to fully integrate women into the force, ending the, uh, the women corps of reserve corps and the like, that was much decried as the end of times. Only several years before, when the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell was discussed and implemented, that again was decried it would be the end of times and the force would disintegrate as would its effectiveness. Um, None of those came true. It had not come true with the end of the ban or the explicit allowance of open transgender service members. Yet, the current administration saw fit to buy into positions that were completely against accepted medical policies the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric, Psychiatric Association, Psychological Association, former surgeons Generals, former Surgeon Generals of Armed Services all agreed that there was nothing to be found that uh, would support the claim that transgender service members could not deploy and fight and that the president would do it by tweet while well, he had shown his cards mm-hmm. long before that time, that that was how he was governing. So when it occurred, it was just a matter of when. What really struck me is that I found myself just two days later out in front of the White House that I had served you know, on a microphone with a speaker talking to a crowd of people angrily against the people who were inside that White House. And then I did it again several weeks later, or excuse me, the next year, um, once the ban went into effect. They claim it's not a ban, but it is effectively, and found myself in a public protest again in, in New York City for that very refer- front and that I'm proud that I've done those things. I didn't expect that I would ever do things like that, but it's it's been necessary in the face of the bigotry that resides inside our current presidential administration, and that wasn't a specific um, driving factor with regard to out in national security, because we feel confident that the group's LGBT advocacy groups, major groups in Washington, D.C., such as the Human Rights Campaign, the National Center for Transgender Equality, um, legal groups such as Lambda Legal, have always done and do an amazing job of fighting back against such things. Um, they're joined by more recent advocacy organizations that focus on LGBT military members. A um, group that is now coalesced into the Modern Military Association of America has always looked out at least for many years now, looked out for LGBT service members and their families. And uh, specifically with regard to the transgender service member issue, there's a group called SPARTA that are four active duty and serving Guard and Reserve service members, transgender service members, and they have incredible leadership and have accomplished great things. So we didn't feel that we were picking up a sword and a shield for that fight specifically, but we were concerned about the place of people across the national security domain. This specifically, not exclusively, the civilian professionals, Mm -hmm. appointees, um, and We consider the national security domain for the purpose of out in national security as military, the Department of Defense, Department of State, Homeland Security, members of the intelligence community, and the associated agencies that participate in national security discussions in our government, but also academia, degree-granting institutions, um, think tanks, which are plenty in Washington, D.C., national security industry, Non-governmental organizations of all stripes, whether it be aid, foreign development, peace organizations, non-proliferation organizations, and the like, as well, and the LGBT advocacy organizations I've, I've mentioned previously, mm-hmm. um, we find those to be a sort of Venn diagram or a network diagram that we hope to connect as we um, grow our organization and our contacts in that way. Because we've learned, we we knew, we suspected, there, are prof- there have always been LGBT professionals in every profession. Some of the early LGBT rights movements were started by either veterans or serving folks that stood up for themselves and gave rise to individual fights and to movements. Um, and we think we're just a small way, continuing that tradition. But finding a place or starting a place, trying to create a place where people can find each other. And we've been moved to nearly to tears by some of the responses that we've gotten. We've um, had the opportunity to partner with other organizations and events and see people attend and just throw a happy hour for the occasion of our launch and have people from multiple generations Um, i was surprised that some people could get past the door and and be successfully carded Um, they, they appeared so young but they were in their very first jobs in national security as well as people who had held ambassadorial level positions people who were predominantly military experience other people who were in financial intelligence to people who worked in nuclear threat, to people who have served in our foreign service for years and people who are meeting old friends that they hadn't seen in years and people who are making new friends that they came and said, I just met somebody who I'm gonna have coffee with tomorrow that I only know through this event. I was moved when I talked to a young woman who I um, met and I guess I'm in a mentoring relationship when we served mm-hmm. in the Pentagon. And I just mentioned to her that we were forming this group. And then she said, I have to tell my colleague, and this woman now happens to work in our intelligence community. He's a peer of mine, uh, you know, they're on their, their first job, they're in their mid-20s. And she said, he happens to be gay and he's talked about how he feels alone t- you know, to a certain extent. And I'm going to tell him about what you're doing. Those things, we've, we just hear those stories all the time and they move us and we hope in the near future as we build our capabilities to provide a place for people to find each other so they can share in their professionalism, mentorship, sponsorship, but also where people can just find fellowship as Mm -hmm. well. They're not alone. We know we're not alone, but you have to also experience that too. The place where we're most um, moved is the um, acceptance by groups that also happen to be generally based in Washington, DC. But there has been a movement of late in the last several years on the cause, the broader cause of diversity in American national security. Um, there are groups such as um, Leading Change Women in National Security, a group that um, launched last year a pledge drive for our presidential campaigns um, 50-50 in 2020, which seeks mm-hmm. and has sought and, and um, received commitments from the major presidential uh, candidates for the Democratic nomination that half of their national security, senior national security appointees will be women, since women happen to be half of the population. Correct. There's uh, organizations such as uh, Diversity in National Security, Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security and Conflict Termination, or Conflict Transition, I believe. There's also Gender Champions in Nuclear Security for the place of women in the nuclear security and nonproliferation world. and those groups, accepted us as equal warriors and gave us our place in that, in that line of battle, so to speak, from our inception welcoming us and helping us, um, which was incredibly affirming and moving when, when when that occurred. And we've gained real resonance with, um, as I mentioned, the Atlantic Council has partnered with mm-hmm. us to an extent. We just participated in an event with uh, the Center for American Progress. We've had excellent conversations with other organizations about holding events to talk about. We represent LGBTQ people or we seek to, but it's the broader point of diversity within American national security. The people that protect America need to look as much like America as possible. And that includes the place of LGBTQ people, but also women, people of color. America should defend itself like it lives and how it looks. And that includes who who contributes in the execution and who contributes in the decision making. And to, um, we feel that that's a fight that we all share uh, amongst the groups that I previously mentioned.
0: You, you mentioned these groups and Having lived in D.C., I I can see how vibrant of an ecosystem of advocacy groups advocacy groups you have in Washington. I wonder when you came to Canada for the Year Ahead Conference, did you feel any differences or did you approach the topic uh, and the story of out in national security differently, knowing that you had a Canadian national security audience in front of you? Frankly,
4: no. When Steve reached out to us, I would say as long ago as the late spring or early summer of of 2019, he led with the fact that, and I actually just heard this referenced on a, um, I think it might have been a, a BBC uh, mm-hmm. show I listened to on the way home today, due to Canadian Canada's particular history and perhaps even a factor of uh, the size, but there isn't a real history of, of, of robust think tanks as there are in America. And also Canada hasn't had quite the same out and out in the open fight with regard to the place of the diverse people in the way uh, it's been op- over the years in America, and that perhaps that hasn't lent itself to the need or the existence of the need for or resulted in the existence of um, so many explicit representative advocacy groups, But and we we accepted that one explanation. But I also know that throughout my career, I've served alongside allies in the military and civilian roles I've held um, closely worked, especially with Canada, from the time that I was a junior officer flying planes, uh, some of the first uh, torpedoes I ever dropped in, in training were in Canadian waters uh, <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the Ninus range. Beautiful, beautiful to fly mm-hmm. in the Canadian Northwest. Uh, the first staff I served on had Canadian officers on it because we were um, an American Navy staff, but at the same time we had a NATO role. And so we had uh, embedded Canadian officers there who I considered colleagues and friends, worked in the um, for the Marine Corps I was a naval officer working for the Marine Corps to help lead the uh, Marine Corps' fight against improvised explosive devices. I sat in our joint organization in Washington DC for a bit and there were Canadian officers embedded in that organization. Um, when I was a civilian appointee in the Pentagon, working with closely with the U.S. Central Command, one of our over the two and a half years I did that, a couple of the uh, senior in orders I had at the at the uh, Central Command were Canadian general officers in the uh, CENTCOM Operations Directorate or the CENTCOM um, Policy Directorate. Mm-hmm. Canada's always been there in my career, so I've never felt any any type of unease as to. You know, obviously, we're, we're different nations with unique policies, but we've always found such common cause over so many different issues that I've never felt any discomfort or potential for real discomfort over issues that matter. When it comes to, a, to speaking with the Canadians as individuals, or I, and I suppose I translated that to the wider professional audience I expected to encounter in Ottawa.
0: And coming back to the work that you do with out in national security, there is a, a particular dimension of your work uh, that I find inspiring, which is supporting the next generation of LGBTQ national security professionals. And I'm wondering. What types of strategies you resort to or what kind of engagement strategies you draw from when engaging with younger people? You mentioned earlier that that you've met a lot of younger people through these interactions. And so how do you think we should best support the next generation in the current climate?
4: Still, what we're still learning as an organization is how to best approach that. What I've learned personally as I've tried to make myself smarter, somewhat I'm translating my recently lived experience, I think it's three-pronged. First it starts, we, we want to, as our national security, help to raise the profile of serving LGBTQ people in the national security profession writ large. It's- previously discussed, that there are folks, and there are senior folks who are already prominent. There are folks who have served as um, U.S. ambassadors. There are folks who have served prominent positions in the U.S. Pentagon. We want to help raise the profile of the folks who are not quite at that cabinet level or ambassadorial level by helping to funnel those folks towards organizations such as um, what we've done um, with the Atlantic Council and their Mid-Career Fellowship. We're, and I put that under the headline of supporting the modeling of folks. One way people can see possibility of achieving their goals or their dreams and knowing that there's possibilities is by seeing models and seeing it. well, I see that person there. They follow their path. to something akin to what I think I want to do. It is possible for me. Having those you know, lights on the horizon, showing that it's possible and there's a place for you down there or over there or up that mountain is an important piece of it because those people have existed for a long time, but they haven't been seen. And if they've been seen as, as successful individuals, perhaps they have not been seen as successful LGBTQ individuals because until recently, that might have been a personally dangerous thing to do professionally or otherwise. That is changing and we hope to ensure it stays changed for the better. So we're looking at modeling by raising the profile and contributing to that. There's also mentorship. What we hope to do without national security is create a network, facilitate a network between there are so many groups across the American national security domain that already contain LGBTQ professionals. There's the LGBT bar locally in D.C., for example. Many major defense contractors and in industry American federal government institutions have employee resource groups that support their LGBTQ employees. They don't talk to one another, either amongst employee groups or professional groups with employee groups or professional groups with other professional groups. There are LGBT student associations in, in universities and colleges that have significant foreign relations, international affairs and national security related programs. Those groups don't talk to those other groups, not regularly, not as a matter of course. It's trying to give those folks opportunity to connect with one another, which can be mentorship in that way. And we also hope to develop towards sponsorship. Which is different from mentorship in knowing that folks who recognize and looking for talent that perhaps they don't necessarily know personally and help guide, but they go that they can reach out and promote the advancement of those people in and, and the proper channels, of course. But sponsorship is a thing that's a step beyond and different than mentorship. Understanding that LGBTQ people can find that sort of sponsorship through things like fellowship that drive recognition for their professionalism and accomplishments and to hope to contribute to that. One thing I'd like to to stress about what our vision for out national security is not that we would become a very big physical organization in terms of employees or offices and the like, is to be more nimble and to be facilitating because there are so many, the people already exist in these professions. There are young LGBTQ people who already aspire to these professions. It's trying to help close those gaps amongst the people and the organizations that already exist, whether that's through technology as well as personal interaction and the like. We're working on that and looking to bring people together to facilitate just those conversations as to the how, because we think it's more a question of closing gaps and raising people up and extending hands down and shining some lights than it is to you know build the physical bridges per se. But if that needs to be done, we'll gather folks to try and do
0: that. And just as a, as a final question and, and drawing upon existing resources and going after grants, are there areas of research you think should be pursued about diversifying the workforce in national security?
4: I think it would be akin to the work that's been done in the corporate world with regard to decision making when it comes to the diverse bodies making decisions in the performance of diverse organizations. I know we've taken it as on fact that those diversity performance measures, diversity-informed, diversity-driven performance measures would translate over into national security, or at least into how an organization that supports national security would perform. That when it's not all people of one type or one background at a table, that table will think more dynamically, presuming it works adequately, that table or that room will come up or at least consider better options than it had before. My experience has shown me that I think that's the case when you talk about large organizations, such as perhaps a Department of Defense or a State Department or any area where you have a long process to reach decisions and actions and the sustainment of, of significant processes. I think it would be very interesting to see how those kind of diversity considerations translate to the top-level decision-making when it comes to um, international relations, national security type things the history of what people, I, I know I am personally sh- shocked, might be too strong a word, but I find it unfortunate when I see pictures of the current National Security Council or I see rooms of the situ- pictures of the Situation Room in the White House. There's been a lot of discussion on social media the last six months or more when you see pictures of the uh, the Oval Office and the Assembly of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the um, combatant commanders arrayed with the president and the vice president and other like pictures or with, you know, members of the National Security Cabinet, and you see the array of those people, and it is shockingly non-diverse. I know, speaking hyper-personally, that um, in my time in the Obama administration, which was, you know... um, I'm fond of it. I'm a member of it. I drank that Kool-Aid, and I understand Mm -hmm. there's a degree of skepticism that always should be applied to someone who talks from such a position as that. I know what moved me the most of my time in that second term was I would walk into a room, which would be um, an administration meeting, some professional development type event, and it would be the most diverse room I'd ever walked into in my life repeatedly, depending upon the sizes of it. Some of them would be sort of cross-administration, multiple agencies being represented, and there would be people, and would be meetings that would include both junior and fairly senior people, but there would be people that, it, those rooms look like America, America to me. Decision-making rooms don't look like America, and do those stats, those scientifically driven research, how does that apply? Can it apply? When will it apply to national security or high-level national decisions, Um, I think would be an interesting thing to pursue. Is there a difference in that that way? Because I understand a spent a wee bit of time in the commercial world. And um, not all those um, motivations and concerns translate directly over to to the public sphere, especially when it comes to exigent circumstances.
0: Well, Sean, I think that research call to action is a great way to bring the conversation to a close. Uh, I hope it will inspire some of our listeners to take up the challenge. And let me just thank you so much for your time and for being on Battle Rhythm today. Thank
4: you. It's been my absolute pleasure, Stephanie, and we can't thank you and Steve enough for having had us at the Year Ahead Conference.
0: Well, I hope that we'll cross paths soon. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much.
2: This summer, the Canadian Defence and Security Network is piloting a new summer institute at Carleton University. This is the first of its kind in Canada, and the goal is to provide a new cross-sectoral professional development and networking opportunity for about 20 participants, including junior members of the Canadian Armed Forces, folks from across government, academia, and the media. The program will take place the week of August 17th to 21st, and will focus on Canada's defence policymaking processes, the threats facing Canada, the dynamics of Canadian civil-military relations, the challenges of getting the best equipment and of recruiting and retaining a diverse force. We will also look at the roles played by special operations and allies in Canadian defense and security. The week will also involve a strategic foresight exercise, as well as other innovative techniques to think about defense and security. A major priority will be to help members of each sector of the defense and security community understand the perspectives of those from other sectors. Please apply by March 15th at www.cdsn-rcds.com slash Summer Institute, or just Google CDSN Summer Institute. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments, and so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS, or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.